Welcome again to the Making Disciples Everyday Podcast. I'm Paul Wilkinson, uh, Group's Associate Minister for Adults of the Brentwood Campus. I'm excited today to bring you Jay Strother, Station Hill Campus Teaching Pastor, uh, Sermon on the Last Battle, Revelation 19, 6 through 16. Uh, I pray that the the coming victory of Christ and the consummation of his kingdom gives you boldness and confidence in your everyday disciple making. Here's Jay. Well, if you'll take your Bibles, turn with me to Revelation chapter 19. Uh, today we continue our Advent series that is coming out of the book of Revelation. Uh, and I know that's been a little different for many of you. Uh, the idea that Advent, we don't just celebrate the first coming of Jesus, we most certainly do, but we also use that to look forward to his second coming. And so that idea at this time of year, again, can strike us kind of funny, kind of like an email that went out from our church several years ago. I was sitting in my office one day at the Brentwood campus. I started getting text messages, some phone calls, emails from some friends who said, hey, do you guys up there at the church know something that we don't know? Because I just got an email that said this, hope for the world ends January 31st. I mean, is the apocalypse coming? You guys have some inside information. Our communications team, we had a missions offering and it's called Hope for the World Missions Offering in January 31st, but we had just shortened it. And so this email went out and a whole bunch of people were like, the end is near. My church just sent me an email with this news. In the same way, For us, sometimes it can be a little disconcerting to think about the fact that we think in Advent about the second coming of Jesus before we have the celebration for his first coming. But Fleming Rutledge, in her book on Advent, talks about this very reality, that the rhythm of the church's season, as it turns out, this is in so many other ways, is theologically profound. If we began with the nativity and then moved to the last judgment, we would be so softened up by that little baby in the manger that we wouldn't be able to take the second coming of Christ in power seriously. The all does not lie in the fact that the baby becomes the eternal judge. What strikes us to the heart is this, that the eternal judge, very God of God, creator of the worlds, the Alpha and Omega has become that little baby. So let's see Jesus for not merely who he was, but for who he truly is today in power. Stand with me in honor of God's word as we read from Revelation chapter 19, verses six through 16 this morning. Then I heard something like the voice of a vast multitude, like the sound of cascading waters and like the rumbling of loud thunder saying, Hallelujah, because our Lord God the Almighty reigns. Let us be glad, rejoice, and give him glory, because the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has prepared herself. She was given fine linen to wear, bright and pure, for the fine linen represents the righteous acts of the saints. And then he said to me, write, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage feast of the Lamb. He also said to me, these words of God are true. Then I fell at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, don't do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers and sisters who hold firmly to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. 
because the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. And then I saw heaven opened, and there was a white horse, its rider called Faithful and True, and he judges and makes war with justice. His eyes were like a fiery flame, and many crowns were on his head. He had a name written that no one knows except himself. He wore a robe dipped in blood. And his name is called the Word of God. The armies that were in heaven followed him on white horses wearing pure white linen. A sharp sword came from his mouth so that he might strike the nations with it. He will rule them with an iron rod. And he will also trample the winepress of the fierce anger of God the Almighty. And he has a name written on his robe and on his thigh. King of kings and Lord of lords. Speak, Lord for your servants are listening. Will you pray with me this morning? Oh Lord Jesus, this Advent Sunday, as with every Sunday, we need to see a bigger and greater picture of who you are. We are tempted to reduce you to something that we can manage. Instead, Father, we need to fall at your feet and recognize that you are King of kings and Lord of lords. So open our eyes, Lord Jesus, to your majesty, your glory, and who you are in this place today. And it's in your name we pray these things. And all God's people said, amen. You may be seated this morning. So as we continue our journey through Revelation, I am with the scholars who note that the apocalypse of John is a work of immense learning, of meticulous literary artistry, of remarkable creative imagination, of radical political critique and profound theology. Revelation is all of those things and more. But we also need to remember that revelation is primarily a revelation of Jesus Christ. That's the opening of the book. And that's who is revealed in power and glory throughout these images and symbols and stories in the book of Revelation. If you think about the different books, especially of the New Testament, we can kind of hone in on the angle, the unique lens through which that author gives us the perspective of who Jesus is. For instance, in the Gospel of Matthew, we see Jesus fulfilling many Old Testament prophecies. In the book of Mark, we see Jesus as the lion, as the one who is the man of action, fulfilling God's purposes and plan and bringing the kingdom to earth. In the gospel of Luke, we see a Jesus who came to seek and save the lost, a Jesus who was truly a God for the whole world. And in the gospel of John, of course, we see the word made flesh. But one of the things that's remarkable about Revelation is that all of those word pictures of who Jesus is come together. And we see a gallery, if you will, of different images and, help, and ways that help us understand the character of Christ. We see in chapter one that he is the alpha and omega, the beginning and the end. We saw last week in chapter five that he is both the roaring lion and the slain lamb who gave his life to stand again as the resurrected one. Today, we're going to see three pictures in Revelation 19 of who Jesus is. Three reasons to praise Jesus from what we know as the last battle. And reason number one is this, Jesus saves, hallelujah. You might not realize this, because we're so familiar with the Psalms 
In the Old Testament, the word hallelujah is used literally hundreds of times from the Hebrew that means hallel, praise, Yahweh. Praise God. This is the first chapter in the New Testament where the word hallelujah appears. Isn't that remarkable? It's as if the entire story is almost complete before we see that word hallelujah coming back around. So if you go with me to verse one of chapter 19, you will see these words. After I heard this, something like the loud voice of a vast multitude in heaven saying, hallelujah, salvation, glory, and power belong to our God because his judgments are true and righteous because he has judged the notorious prostitute who corrupted the earth with her sexual immorality. He has avenged the blood of his servants that was on her hands. And a second time they said, hallelujah, her smoke ascends forever and ever. Then the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who was seated on the throne saying, amen, hallelujah. A voice came from the throne saying, praise our God, all his servants, the one who fear him, both small and great. There are four hallelujahs here. We'll read the next one again in a moment. But these first three praise Jesus because he saves. His very name, Jesus, Yeshua, Joshua in the Old Testament means Yahweh saves. And so what's happened, if you're asking, because we jumped last week from Revelation 5 to Revelation 19, my answer is a lot has happened. And I want to encourage you in your own Bible reading to go back and read about what happens when Jesus seizes the destiny of the world, when the seals are broken, when the trumpet judgments are sounded, and when the bowls of wrath are poured out. Because we see the cycle of history as it draws to its conclusion. Even though it is an absolute mess, Jesus is sovereign. And I want you to read the text first. Don't jump immediately to your study notes and your commentaries because I am with British author G.K. Chesterton who says, and though St. John saw many strange monsters in his vision, he saw no creature as wild as one of his own commentators. So read the text, then go to your study notes and to your commentaries. But be amazed as you watch Jesus over and above sovereign over the mess of history, bringing all things to fulfillment, fulfilling his plan. And the reason why heaven breaks out in hallelujahs in chapter 19 is because in chapter 18, we have the song of the defeat of Babylon, representing the corrupt regimes, the evil of this world that they have finally been defeated. And this sets up for us the last battle. But these hallelujahs are like a crescendo that builds throughout this chapter. And if you hear the word hallelujah and in your mind you hear the hallelujah chorus, that's for good reason. How many of you, I'm curious, have heard Handel's Messiah in this room? Show of hands, let me see it. Okay, about 50%. It's been about the same in each service. I remember the first time I heard Handel's Messiah actually sang it as part of our college choir. I knew the Hallelujah Chorus that many of us know. I had no idea that the thing was like three and a half hours long, right? It is forever long, inspired by Revelation chapter 19. 
George Friedrich Handel sat down to write an oratio that was supposed to be unveiled and was supposed to be used primarily at Easter time because it contains the, the whole story of Jesus. But in our world, we've been so moved by the part about the incarnation, it's why it's become a Christmas time tradition and celebration in our culture for people to gather, to hear it, for it to be sung. And you might not realize this, but it is 259 pages long. It contains 250,000 notes, a quarter of a million notes. What Handel was trying to do was to try to take the inspiration of the hallelujahs in heaven and write them in a way that we would be able to celebrate them on earth. And it was like he couldn't stop. For almost four weeks, he wrote day and night, Word got out about how powerful this oratio was. It was first performed in Dublin, Ireland. And so the theater had to send out a note to all of their patrons. This is the 1700s. Ladies, don't wear your hoop skirts. And guys, don't bring your swords with you because we're gonna have to all sit and squeeze into this theater. And we don't want your hoop skirts or your swords getting in the way. Imagine if we had to send out a memo saying, we expect so many people at church. Ladies, your great big hoop skirts don't wear them, right? So guys... Leave your swords at home. Like there's not enough room in the worship center for all of those accoutrements because that was the anticipation when this was sung. And then some of you know the tradition that uh, somewhat later, King George II apparently stood during the Hallelujah Chorus. And so that's why we stand to this day, allegedly. Of course, there's another tradition out there that after like two and a half hours, he was just tired of sitting. And so he happened to stand up to stretch his legs and everybody's like, the king's standing, so we gotta stand too. And so everybody in the auditorium stood. But here's what's remarkable. People in our culture to this day still stand when they hear the hallelujahs sung. That is the right posture because Jesus saves. And that is the first reality that we need to keep in the front of our mind when we read the last battle of Revelation 19. The second picture we get of Jesus is this, is that of the groom who is coming for his bride. Did you catch it? In the fourth hallelujah, we see something signaled. Hallelujah, because our Lord God, the Almighty reigns. So let us be glad, rejoice and give him glory because the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has prepared herself. In the Old Testament, Israel was often spoken of, of being the bride of Yahweh, the bride of God. But of course she proved unfaithful. And so God promised that one day he would woo her back through a new covenant. And of course, Jesus came to inaugurate that new covenant. And so now the bride represents all of God's people. The bride represents us, the church. And a little backstory is helpful to us in understanding this in Jewish culture of the first century. The wedding feast was the biggest party that there was. Weddings are still celebrations in our culture and in just about every culture throughout the world. But in particular, the wedding feast, it had three stages, the wedding process and Jewish tradition. The first one was the betrothal or the engagement. It was more formal than our engagements today. You had to actually be divorced if you decided to get engaged and you agreed and then you had to break it off at that moment. But it was the moment that said, hey, we're gonna get married, we're committed to one another. Then there was the interval. The groom-to-be would go home to his father and he would have to build a room onto the father's house. He would have to prove to the father that he was going to be able to take care of his bride. And so originally, the bride didn't know when the groom would come for her. 
And so she had to wait and be prepared because her wedding could come at any moment. Ladies, how would you have liked it if you didn't know when your wedding day was gonna be? You were just sitting around waiting on that guy to prove himself, right? That's the way that it was. But that helps us understand the richness of this metaphor, that that bride is waiting for that biggest moment of her life. And in the same way, we are waiting for the return of Jesus. And in that Jewish culture, when that ceremony took place, it wasn't just a reception. It wasn't just an afternoon or an evening. It was a week of feasting. It was a week of celebration. It was a week of partying. And in their culture, it was the biggest, most lavish party that they could afford. And so that picture of Jesus returning for us is the picture of the biggest party that you can imagine. I have three daughters. I officiate a good number of weddings. My daughters have over the years seen their favorite parts of all of these weddings, and in their mind, they have the biggest, greatest, most expensive celebration in mind that you can possibly hold. Unfortunately, I'm a preacher, right? So they're not gonna get much of that, but they have this idea of this grandiose wedding. So in your imagination, imagine the biggest feast, the biggest celebration that you can. And that's what John is speaking of when he says, I saw this vision of the marriage supper of the lamb, that the time is now, the moment that we've all been waiting for is now. And not only are we the bride that Jesus is coming back for, but we are also the ones who attend the feast. Have you ever gotten an invitation to something spectacular. Maybe it was a presidential inauguration. Maybe it was a ticket to a Super Bowl or a championship game, a huge sporting event. Maybe it was an invitation to a concert to attend and hear your, famous, your favorite artist. Whatever it was, imagine the best invitation ever coming for you in the mail. And that's what happens for John because he's overwhelmed by this picture that Jesus is returning. And so in verse 10, he falls apart. It's almost comical. John falls down at the feet of the angel who says, hey, you are invited to the marriage supper of the lamb. And John tries to worship the angel and the angel says don't do that this would be like the mailman bringing you that invitation and you begin to fall down and worship the mailman that's not what needs to take place here instead here is an incredible two-word summary of the entire book of revelation of what we're supposed to do don't do that the angel says i'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers and sisters who hold firmly to the testimony of jesus here's your two-word summary worship god that's it. For all of the complexities of the prophecy and the symbols of revelation, here is what we're supposed to do. The same thing the angel told John. Worship God. Worship him because the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Jesus is the one who holds the key, who unlocks the mysteries so that we can know him. And so our Jesus saves. Our Jesus is the groom coming for his bride. And number three, Jesus is the victorious warrior. Jesus is the victorious warrior. Now to be sure, Jesus was fully man. And we get that. But as a pastor, what I see people struggling with more is that we are tempted to reduce Jesus to something less than he is right now. We want to manage Jesus. We wanna make Jesus some kind of divine Santa Claus that we just go to and call out to when we need something or want something. 
In our culture, it's common to take the name of Jesus in vain. It's more common for us to just say, yeah, Jesus was just another good moral teacher. Brothers and sisters, I want you the next time you're overwhelmed to open your Bible to Revelation 19 and I want you to read verses 11 through 16 and I want you to remember who your Jesus is. First of all, he comes on what? A white horse. Who rides white horses, church? Victors, emperors and generals who have already won the battle. They don't ride their white horse to the battle. They ride their white horse to the victory parade. That should be a hint about what's coming next. And then John, again, grabbing for biblical language, tries to describe, and he gives us seven images here, all with connections in other places of the Bible as to who this writer is. Number one, he's called faithful and true because he is. Number two, he judges and makes war with justice. Know this. The evil in this world will one day have its reckoning and it will be at the hands of Jesus who will bring all justice. Number three, his eyes are like a fiery flame. They see everything. They are pure and they are penetrating. Number four, there is not just one crown, but there are many crowns. This is the crown, the word for victor. And so Jesus has many victorious crowns on his head. Number five, there are still things known only to him that are above us and beyond us. He has a name written that no one knows except himself. Number six, he wore a robe dipped in blood. That's a reference to the prophecy of Isaiah 63, but it's also, of course, a reference to his own blood that was shed. Number seven, his name is called the word of God. Brothers and sisters, behold Jesus, who is all of these things. Verse 14, the armies that were in heaven followed him on white horses wearing pure white linen. Where are the saints of God? We are following Jesus. What are we on? White horses. What are we dressed in? Pure white linen for a battle. Hold on to that thought. Verse 15, three more prophecies. A sharp sword came from his mouth so that he might strike the nations with it. Isaiah chapter 11. He will rule them with an iron rod. Psalm chapter two, verse nine. He will trample the winepress of the fierce anger of God. Isaiah 63 again. And Roman emperors loved the title King and Lord. Guess what? Jesus has come to take his name back It is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And it it is inscribed on his robe and on his thigh. Make no mistake about it. This is the King above all kings. Brothers and sisters, behold your God. And whatever ailment, whatever financial worries, whatever relationship difficulties, whatever worldly powers you face right now, whatever it is that you are up against, Know that your Jesus comes on the white horse of a victor. Don't ever forget that this is who your Jesus is. I love these word pictures of the majesty and the power of Jesus who has taken his name back and who leads the heavenly host into battle. And speaking of the battle, verse 17, we see an unusual scene. Now Jesus is already riding the horse of the victor. 
Now he's calling the vultures in before the battle is even fought. We've seen the beautiful marriage supper of the lamb. Well, now contrast it against that is what theologians call the banquet of the beasts. I saw an angel standing in the sun, calling out in a loud voice, saying to the birds flying high overhead, come gather together for the great supper of God so that you may eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of military commanders, the flesh of the mighty, the flesh of the horses and of their riders, and the flesh of everyone, both free and slave, small and great. You see, the Bible tells us that at that moment, at that moment, your mind is made up. And for those apart from Christ, it is too late. This is a sobering picture of the judgment of God. And yeah, I know that feels heavy, but those ultimate truths remind us that we live in a world that loves to operate in shades of gray. We love in a world that loves to say, you can straddle the fence. And when this moment comes, when Jesus returns, there is no more straddling the fence. As Jesus himself said in the Gospel of Matthew, you are either for me or you are against me. And there will be consequences for those who their whole life have given themselves over to the beastly ways of this world. Now they are judged alongside of the beast, the false prophet, and the serpent. And so this sets up for us Are you ready for it, church? The battle that we know as Armageddon, the great battle at the end of the age. Put on your epic thinking caps here and know that in this moment, we don't get the word Armageddon or Megiddo from this passage. We get it from chapter 16, but we see the enemies of Christ assembling on the plains of Megiddo. And so in verse 19, I saw the beasts, the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to wage war against the rider on the horse and against his army. It doesn't get any more dramatic than this. This is the moment. This is the final battle in the history of the world. We have Jesus on his white horse, all of the armies of heaven. We have the kings who have opposed Jesus and his power, who want to set themselves up as ruler, who are following the false prophet and the beast and Satan himself in the form of a serpent, and they are assembled against the Almighty. And what happens? The beast was taken prisoner into the battle. I got serious. There's a few other details but it's the most anticlimactic battle that you can possibly imagine. The beast is taken prisoner along with the false, false prophet who has performed the signs in its presence. He deceived those who accepted the mark of the beast and those who worshiped its image with these signs. Both of them were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. The rest were killed with the sword that came from the mouth of the rider on the horse and the birds ate their fill of their flesh. Into battle, Jesus wins. And guess what? We didn't lift a finger. Jesus doesn't need us. We follow in his victory parade. This is not Star Wars, church. There's not equally light and dark forces in the universe that are battling themselves out. Is the power of our enemy real? Yes, it is. Are there still battle skirmishes being fought? Yes, most definitely. Because we live in between the now and the not yet, but the victory has already been won on the cross and in the resurrection. And so for you and me, we get to come to the last battle on horses of white, 
horses of victory, dressed in linen, that's party clothes, that's your finest attire, for the wedding feast, not for the battle. Jesus himself single-handedly vanquishes evil. He doesn't need us, instead we get to be a part of his victory parade. And all God's people said, amen. So on your worst day, when you feel overwhelmed by the evil in the world, Open these words and know that they are faithful and true. That you have a groom who is coming for you. The way that a groom comes for his bride. I agree with Dr. Jim Hamilton who puts it this way. He says, never has there been a more worthy bridegroom. Never has a man sacrificed more for his beloved than Jesus. Never has a man gone to greater lengths, humbled himself more, endured more, or accomplished more in the great task of winning his bride. What if we lived like these words were true? So three questions for us this Advent Sunday. Question number one is this. Will your invitation be to the marriage feast of the lamb or to the banquet of beasts? Because all of us, are headed to one or another at the end. So if you don't know Jesus as your savior today, then you, you want to get right with him today. You wanna turn away from your sin and yourself and say, I want a groom who's going to come for me. I want a king to reign over me. I wanna get myself and my sin off the throne of my heart. And I want Jesus to be my savior. That's the one and only way that you get a ticket to the marriage feast of the lamb. Everyone else, make no mistake about it, their fate will be sealed and they will be headed to the banquet of the beasts. For those of us who know Christ, this lends urgency to our evangelism, urgency to the gospel message that we live and proclaim because we know that every moment that goes by is one moment that we are closer to Jesus returning. And so these words are written to the church to know that there should be a sense of urgency by which we go about our mission. Because I said, as I said earlier, right now our world likes to straddle the fence about who Jesus is. At this moment, it will be too late. As C.S. Lewis says, when the author steps back on the stage, the play is over and Jesus is returning soon. So don't wait until it's too late. Question number two for you this morning is this. How does seeing Jesus as the victorious warrior change the way that you live? Do you realize, brothers and sisters, that we don't fight for victory? Jesus has already won the battle. We fight from victory. Yes, Satan is in his last throes. So he's thrashing around, making the biggest mess he can of things, trying to hurt God's children because that's all the time that he can do with the time that he has left. His days are numbered. But understand this, as followers of Jesus, the victory, the battle has already been won. So no matter what sin you struggle with, no matter your past, no matter your backstory, know that we are victorious and we reign and rule with Christ. As Martin Luther once famously said, I live this day in light of that day, the day when Jesus will return. So I agree with the theologians who say, there's nothing to fear about fighting. Think about it. The danger is in not fighting. 
The safest place to be, Revelation 19 tells us, is where? Lined up behind the Lord Jesus Christ, following him into battle. He's the one who goes before us. He is the one who is victorious. So when we're aligned with him, we have nothing to fear, even the powers of hell themselves, as we sang about so powerfully earlier this morning. Live this day in light of the victory of Jesus Christ. And number three for us this morning, what hallelujah do you need to declare today? You see, when we get a picture of the worship that's taking place in heaven, when we understand the divine perspective that Revelation brings, that Jesus truly is the Lord over all things, he's the Lord over your life, my life, he's the Lord over history, then we are reminded that we need to praise him today, that we need to sing our hallelujahs for how he saved us, for how he's at work around us. And we need to remember that when we stand to sing as a church, that when we declare his praises with our words and our life, that what we're doing is standing in the middle of a culture that is very much like Babylon and declaring that Jesus is king. So what is the praise song that you need to sing today? Because this is your king who was and is and who is to come. Bow your heads with me this morning as we prepare our hearts to respond in worship. And just like last week, we have songs that help us put to music, words, our expressions of praise. The song that we are about to sing this morning has these words. He shall return in robes of white, the blazing sun shall pierce the night and I will rise among the saints, my gaze transfixed on Jesus' face. Can you sing those words with confidence today? Are you in Christ Jesus? Do you know the victory through him? Do you know beyond the shadow of a doubt that one day you will rise resurrected in Christ? Your gaze fixed on the face of your bridegroom who's coming for you, the bride, your victorious warrior who's on the white horse, who has won the battle so that you could know eternal life. As we sing these words today, can you sing them with confidence because you know they're faithful and true? If not, would you respond to your savior today? And it's in his name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Stand with us as we worship. I cast my mind to Calvary, where Jesus fled. 